1: to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm,
0: this is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix.
1: TV stars Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen endured the leering eye of the world's media for all of their teenage years, but once they turned 18, they were ready to channel their fame and power into something else entirely, fashion. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello,
0: Zara McDonald. Hello, Michelle Andrews. Welcome to part two of the Olsen Twins. A very nostalgic series for sure. Guys, last episode, we spoke about how growing up, the twins were really everywhere. They were the biggest stars of our childhood generation, I would say. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about doing stuff like this is growing
1: up, obviously, all we saw was the front-facing stuff of Mary-Kate and Ashley. All we saw is the fact that they were everywhere and I think when you're young you assume of course that that is just almost happenstance mm. and then you do episodes and series like this and you go right into the behind the scenes and you realize how many adults in the room were really trying to profit off the image of Mary-Kate and Ashley. and of course Mary-Kate Nashley profited too but certainly I had some questions going through that last episode about what their levels of consent could be
0: At the age that they were. Particularly when you got into the industry when you were nine months old. Yeah. Don't know how much consent a nine-month-old can give. Exactly, exactly. We also spoke last episode about the price that came with this insane amount of fame, specifically how poorly Mary-Kate was treated by the media when she was going through a reported eating disorder. But in this episode, Zara, we're going to speak about what happened next, how the Olsons kind of disappeared from our television screens and our lives entirely, and then how they built careers for themselves completely out of the spotlight. Yeah, so Mish, we are heading all the way back to 2004. So in the middle of 2004, after a six-week stay in a rehabilitation clinic for a reported eating disorder, an 18-year-old Mary-Kate returned to her typical life alongside her sister Ashley.
1: Yeah, exactly. A spokesperson for the Twins told CNN she's feeling very well and is looking forward to rejoining her family and friends and preparing for her freshman year at New York University. And so began Mary-Kate and Ashley going to college. Their spokesperson told the LA Times, this is their chance to explore. So Ashley Mish was interested in studying Italian psychology and business while Mary-Kate was looking into photography.
0: Yeah, the twins originally purchased a $7.3 million penthouse in the West Village to live together. But Ashley later said they never actually moved into it because they decided they wanted to live apart. She told New York Magazine that this was, and I quote, the best decision we ever made. I really love that them that they kind of got to this stage in their life got to their college years and decided no we need to forge lives outside of each other like we need to be our own people absolutely and it's so funny because very recently as we were sort of
1: about to record this episode I saw a TikTok come up in my feed which was whatever happened to the Olsen twins (gasps) New York college pad yeah and the TikToker I wish I remembered the username I'll put it in our show notes because I'll be able to go back and find it went through room by room how amazing this apartment was and the fact they decided not to live in it together. But of course, this felt very much like the first time the twins were, A, I guess, trying to become more well-rounded adults, but B, trying to experience the world without being glued to each other. I think it would be a very unique experience being a twin Mm. in that capacity, working together, having your identity so tied together, Mm. to get to the point of being 18 and thinking, we really need to experience the world a little bit separately.
0: Yeah, their spokesperson said that Mary-Kate and Ashley just wanted to, and I quote, blend in as New Yorkers living a day-to-day normal life, getting coffee at a deli, walking down a street without being bothered. When they moved to Manhattan, though, the twins really started appearing in the pages of the weekly tabloid magazines. This era is probably quite memorable for most of our listeners, actually. This was when Mary-Kate and Ashley were constantly wearing like super baggy, oversized clothes. It was like a complete DVD from their teen poppy fashion vibe we had gotten from them for so long
1: yeah absolutely and magazines became fixated on it because they became fixated on how the two were dressing running and I quote and this is from the New York Times picture after picture of the two in big round glasses and loose layered knits implying something deranged and effortful in a look that suggested Janice Joplin deranged is interesting there I do kind of look back and think the inference and the implication from all this reporting was that they had no fashion sense. They'd sort of lost the plot and were wearing these like big baggy clothes to almost hide from the media.
0: Yeah, it was weird. I remember reading a lot of this coverage and feeling like the media positioned Mary-Kate and Ashley, the tabloid media, positioned them as like, Quirky aunts, almost like they yes. had this super quirky, bizarre sense of fashion that the media just couldn't make sense of, and therefore the twins had lost the plot or something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I also think there's often discourse when child styles grow up of what happens when they try to bridge the gap between teenager and adult. And I do think this exploration into fashion was part of it. We just kind of didn't like it very we much. We didn't know what to do with we it. We as a collective, and when I mean we, I meant the tabloid media. <laughs> now, In 2005, reports emerged that the twins were thinking about dropping out of school. Mary Kate was caught reportedly skipping classes. (laughs) Now, apparently, a big reason why they dropped out of college was because some of their fellow students began selling information about them to the tabloids. Here's what the New York Magazine's Amy LaRocca wrote a year later in a profile piece on the twins. Mary-Kate was freaked out by the kids in her class who were selling anecdotes to tabloids in some cases even getting school credit for it They'd have internships at the weeklies she says adding
0: learning is not fun if you are not safe. That would be such a weird experience but it's okay because the following year in 2006 Mary-Kate and Ashley would embark on an entirely new path for their careers. They launched a luxury fashion label you might have heard of. It is called The Row Now Zara in 2006 six backed by Jewel star the row launched Mary Kate and Ashley were just 20 years old when we were doing this and going through our run sheets and looking through all this research
1: that Justine had put together I said to you if you had you know me on a quiz show and you said five million (laughs) dollars when did the twins start the row
0: I would have said like 2013, 2014. And that shows the listeners that you're that little bit ahead of me because I would have said 2016, 2017. But maybe we just got to an age where we were looking on websites where The Row was featured more regularly. I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, 2006, The Row was certainly (laughs) not on my radar. That's incredible.
1: Now, the name is apparently a nod to Savile Row. Savile Row, of course, is a street in Mayfair, central London, which is known principally for its traditional bespoke tailoring for men. And I think if anyone knows anything about the row today they've certainly you know kept firm on that premise Mm. now the row started out with one goal to make the perfect t-shirt I remember this I remember this too. yeah now Ashley apparently meticulously tested out the t-shirt on people of all shapes and sizes aged between 20 and and 60 years old and they wanted to find this common perfect design that worked for everybody they went on to sell it for 195 usd which i think is probably <laughs> why i remember this
0: story it's a pricey pricey t-shirt the row first hit pages of vogue in 2007 new york magazine wrote that the brand and i quote made its debut in american vogue won fans at french vogue and immediately attracted the attention of some of the most discriminating stores here and abroad maxfield in los angeles maria louisa in Paris, Harvey Nichols in London, Barney's in New York.
1: Now, not everybody was happy with the twins' move towards fashion. As you can imagine, celebrities moving into this space is not always the most welcomed (laughs) thing within the industry they're moving into. According to Vogue, the Olsen twins were up against a cynical audience of retailers. A lot of the time I think celebrity lines or celebrity fashion lines are just ways for famous people to make more money by selling kind of poor quality products that they had nothing to do with just for their fan base, kind Mm. of slapping their name on something and saying – Come and buy this. Vogue said that nobody really believed that the girls were designing the clothes at first.
0: Yeah, Vera Wang actually weighed in on this in 2007. She made a thinly veiled jab at brands like The Row when she said, celebrities have made it harder for real designers. I'm not going to pretend that I know everything about the fashion industry. Vera Wang would probably know far, (laughs) far more than I ever will. But I do find that premise interesting I find it complicated to wrap my head around without being kind of deep within it how can celebrities launching fashion lines make it harder for real designers I think I just find that to be a clunky point
1: I don't because I can't say that if I wasn't Vera Wang I wouldn't think or feel the same thing I think what she'd be implying is it becomes a really saturated market where a lot of the media attention on these fashion lines goes towards brands with a big face I mean we're in podcasting celebrities have podcasts everywhere has that made it a harder market yes absolutely do you
0: yeah that's so interesting I think it's
1: made it a way more saturated market and I'm not, I don't, we don't sit here and ever talk about it because clearly this is the first time we've ever had a conversation yeah. about it. But I think we have conversations at work all the time about when every man and his dog or her dog or their dog has a podcast, <laughs> what do you do about that? How do you have a point of difference?
0: And I think yep. similarly would be with the
1: fashion industry. What okay. do you think
0: about that? I, I think that makes sense. I guess my point to that is maybe if it was a smaller designer coming out saying celebrities make it hard for us. I would have more time. It's Vera Wang making this point. I feel like Vera Wang gets enough of, like, the attention and the – I don't know, media coverage that I'm not super concerned about her. (laughs) Also,
1: the line, real designers, is an interesting one for sure. Now, the row was a sharp departure from the twins' last 18 years of products. Jewelstar, as we know, had commodified and monetized every aspect of Mary-Kate and Ashley. The company's entire business model was based on the idea that they could sell anything, and we really mean anything, (laughs) as long as it had their names and faces on it. However, as noted by Vogue, the point with the row was very different. The point was, as Vogue wrote, they were aiming at the very people who are likely to shun celebrity-related collections. I mean, it's absolutely true. They wanted to create this very cool, this very chic, this very paired back mm. fashion line. And the kind of customer they wanted was not the kind of customer that would want to buy something made by Mary-Kate and Ashley.
0: No, this was... As far as the brands that we have researched in anything we've done in Shameless over the last four and a half years, this is the biggest 180 I have seen in personal branding, maybe ever. And the way they executed it is just a masterclass. As New York Magazine noted, the Olsen name appears nowhere on the product and they won't be photographed in its promotion. They really pulled back completely. They wanted the row to stand on its own two feet without their faces.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, there's no denying that by this point in their career, Meredith, Kate and Ashley were as of course, savvy business people. When they were 18, they actually took over control of Dual Star, which had over a billion dollars of annual sales. Now, even though they didn't actually have a formal design education, Ashley told Vogue, we had a collection with Walmart at 12, which was the upper tier of the tween market. It was before celebrity designers, Mary-Kate added, and we were really designing it. It would be jeans, a bit
0: bohemian, or with a little blazer. It was really fashion forward. This line from Vogue was really interesting too. As blonde and cute and as endlessly measured in paparazzi pictures and gossip column inches as the Olsen twins are, you quickly learn how stupid it is to think of them as dinky little celebrity girls with an accidental business in clothes. As such, Mary-Kate and Ashley said that they really had to prove themselves in the industry. Ashley told Vogue, We hired a showroom and talked buyers through. Mary-Kate added, People would drill us about fabric, where we'd made it. The first season, customers bought it, so the stores came back and drilled us again.
1: Yeah, but as New York Magazine wrote the following year in 2007, the Olsons, love it or hate it, do have style. They have it in buckets. Even though supermarket tabloids condemn them to worse dress lists, fashion people are obsessed with their arms open embrace of the industry's avant-garde. They experiment with proportion and silhouette. They mix vintage with new labels and non. They've raised accessorising to a form of high, glamorous art. The Olsen style resembles anyone at all. It's not Lindsay Lohan or Mandy Moore or any of their other other presumptive peers they dress like sitting editors at French Vogue I love that I do love that I mean it wouldn't be a media article from 2007 or a media compliment in 2007 without dragging other people down as well
0: not Lindsay Lohan or Mandy Moore no they're better than that
1: but (laughs) that said I do think there's something to say if you go back and look at photos from this time I do think that they were ahead of their time I think they were so sort of out of left field when they started to dress how they really wanted to address and kind of express themselves. As we said already, the media didn't know what to do with them and sort of thought they were a bit nuts, but they were a bit ahead of their time.
0: It's kind of funny as well. I think the reason I love that passage from New York Magazine is like it's kind of funny to laugh at the tabloids who are saying, oh, they don't get fashion, they don't get fashion, when these two women ended up being some of the most influential and successful people in the fashion space because they got it so much that the weekly tabloids didn't get it. Yes,
1: yeah. (laughs) It's the kind of thing where it's like if you're wearing something that you like – and someone else you
0: don't respect yeah. their
1: style of doesn't like it you're like that's a compliment yeah like i'm glad you don't like it
0: something tells me the olson twins didn't really want ok magazine or <laughs> us weekly to get it yeah yeah to tap them <laughs> on the back and say incredible stuff now by this point in
1: 2007 the row had expanded to include a number of perfectly designed wardrobe essentials the line consisted of what new york magazine described as a few expensive knit t-shirts with fancy french seams a well-cut blazer and a tight band miniskirt amongst other things now the palette was black white cream and gray with the occasional shot of red the stuff was relatively simple there's no denying that but as new york magazine wrote the label was and i quote like the olsons themselves
0: in its simultaneous desire to be both noticed and hidden Mm, I like that line. It's very smart. That same year, the twins launched another label called Elizabeth and James. Now, this label was named after their younger sister, Elizabeth Olsen, and their older brother, James Olsen. The brand was marketed as more of a contemporary and slightly more affordable line of clothing. I find that quite funny that you give your twins the like slightly cheaper brand.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but we'll take the expensive one. (laughs) Yeah. Now, it's also worth noting that the original Mary-Kate and Ashley brand was also still hugely successful. It was the US's number one selling brand in a number of categories. It was the top fashion and lifestyle brand for girls and the number one girls' video franchise of all time. Books about the Olsen's adventures had sold 40 million copies. So it was kind of nice. They still had this cash flow
0: coming in. Not everything was reliant on the Row, but the Row no. was the future. They had both sides of themselves. They had the old Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen still ticking over and generating massive revenue for Jewel Star. Then they had the new adult high fashion version of Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen that was also starting to bring in massive amounts of money. As New York Magazine pointed out at the time, they had entered a new era The mag wrote, the Olsen twins lives have become so much more sophisticated and complicated than their products. They have been selling formica bedroom sets in pastel colors that they worship Jesquer. Now, Jesquer is a French Belgian fashion designer who is now the creative director of Louis Vuitton. So I think that duality that you could be selling pastel children's bed set covers whilst worshiping someone who's now in the upper echelons of Louis Vuitton, I think that shows just how disparate the two sides of Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen's identities in the public eye were. Yeah, and how long it clearly would have taken them to convince people that they were... The real
1: deal it's like that classic thing when you're 18 or 19 and you have these interests but people still consider you a child and they kind of want you to get back in your box and be like you don't really care about that you don't really know enough about it but with enough time things change we are of course going to get far more into the success of the row and how mary-kate and ashley transitioned out of the spotlight but that is after the break
0: Sarah, by 2008, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen's identities in the media had shifted, as we said. The New York Times wrote that symbolically, they are harder to define because they defy the standard categories of American celebrity. They have acted, but acting is now just a peripheral part of their identity. They appear regularly in tabloids, yet they cannot fairly be included among the Parises and Nicoles, the sisterhood of young women famous only for their professional apathy. Again, <laughs> we've just got to throw a few women in there. If yeah. we're going to give one woman a Compliment or two women a compliment. Drag the others down. Drag two down. (laughs) Yeah, hundred percent. Now, still,
1: Mary Kate told the New York Times in two thousand and eight that the biggest misconception that they faced is, and I quote, "that we don't work." She told the Times, "This whole idea that we don't do anything seems crazy to us because we have been working since we were nine months old." It is a really interesting point to me. It's like why did we want to? Why were we so desperate to accuse Mary Kate Nashley of being famous for the sake of being famous? Like is it about the legitimacy of work and what we consider to be legitimate or is it because they started working when they were so small? And we therefore thought their whole career was then luck, Mm. that they kind of fell into this. Like maybe it's both of
0: those things. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think we just do this to Mary-Kate and Ashley. I think we do this to celebrities even now all the time. Mostly female celebrities. Yeah, I think what's happening is we see people who maybe were born with pretty privilege or other forms of privilege. And we go, oh, okay, luck played a factor in what they now have. And it's easier for us to go, well, it's just luck then. Like even with the Kardashians, to look at what they've built and go, oh, well, that's all luck. That's all privilege. When in reality, privilege might get your foot in the door, but I don't think it makes a career. And I think that's when the hard work kicks in. And there's no way that Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen have built what they built without being bloody hard workers. But we don't want to acknowledge that. Yeah, or just with really smart people around them as well. Like I think
1: there are, as you say, multiple elements to these. I kind of think it's because we've seen them in the public eye for so long that we kind of forgot because they were so famous for so long. Mm. We kind of forgot that they were famous because they'd been working. We only ever knew them as famous rather than, you know, two people who are working at four years old like that's crazy now in reality Mary-Kate and Ashley by all accounts worked pretty doggedly multiple news outlets have said that Ashley kind of handled the business affairs while Mary-Kate handled the particulars of the design so Ashley was the financial brain and Mary-Kate was the creative brain and it sounds like these two worked together extremely, extremely well, as you can probably only imagine. Take this passage from the Cuts piece by Matthew Schneier, for instance. They spoke without speaking. One person who knew them said, I never saw them disagree with each other. They shared a single office. They even booked the least fun slot possible for their fashion shows, 9am, which they started unfashionably on time and held their first few at the Carlisle. I never saw them ever laid back, someone who worked with them told me. Some designers, you see them let loose, maybe after the show, this person said. I never saw that. I thought that was really interesting, like a couple of things in that sort of passage. First and foremost, that the Olsen twins weren't trying to crack into the fashion industry because they wanted to be part of the cool set or wanted to be part of the party scene. They were having their shows at 9am, which wasn't the cool slot. They were like,
0: let's just get this done at a time that we don't care if you don't have a drink. Yeah. It's about the fashion, nothing else. And it really does feel like they were purely interested in the craft. I don't think they were interested in the socialite scene that came attached to that craft. They just want to do the thing. No, and I think before this I would have
1: said that they were at the centre of the socialite scene because when you see people in tabloids, that's what feels safe to assume. Mm. But it's like it feels very much like they never actually sought out the tabloids. The tabloids were just fixated on them.
0: Mm. The brand became really popular and was a huge commercial success as we now know. They stuck to simple classic designs and that was a huge point of appeal for the road. The clothes were almost entirely made in the US. As well, despite the cost that came with that. Robin Given explained to the Washington Post that, and I quote, at a time when the culture is in a frantic dash for the newest technology, the brashest idea, the most subversive gamesmanship, the fastest solutions, aiming to do a simple thing utterly, deliberately, beautifully right is something of a marvel.
1: The row had sort of tapped into the dream demographic, which is really wealthy women who were so wealthy they didn't need to show off their wealth. (laughs) The Cut wrote that, The row is fashion for those for whom money is no object, by who don't need to look obviously rich, not the way a Versace blouse looks rich, which is to say aggressively, literally. (laughs) It purses its lips at logos, and that's from last season trend, Obsolescence. As such, it's found its people, not the women who want to make it, but those who have already made it. I'm obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with that sense because it's absolutely true. It's like you're not buying the row because it's flashy. But then on the other hand, it's flashiness is in the fact it's not flashy. So it's like the ultimate flashy thing to do. Does that make
0: sense? No, 100%. The thing about wearing the row is the people in the know, the people you want to appeal to will know that you're wearing the row. But it's not like the average person would know. It's like a step above if you see someone walking around with a Gucci bag or with a Versace blouse, as was given in that example, everyone knows that that person has money. The people who wear the row have so much money that only the other people with money know they have money yes
1: exactly (laughs) now as such the brand became hugely popular It became the number one selling ready to wear brand at barney's new york beating up prada gucci and saint laurent now the former fashion director at barney's new york told the cut what it was like selling the row she said that the row was considered cool but she didn't know many women who actually wore it then one day she said a client walked in and bought 30 row sweaters three zero of the same crew neck. She bought everything we had in the company in her size so she would never run out of them, $30,000 in crew necks. It was at that moment that this former fashion director at Barney's realized that, and I quote, if you're a super wealthy woman in New York, the way we go to Uniqlo, They go to The Row.
0: (laughs) The Row grew from five people in a small office in the Garment District to a West Village office and detelier. They went from $10 million in sales in 2009 to 10 times that a few years later. So, what, we're looking at about $100 million a year. The brand also became hugely respected. In 2011, the twins brought on a former Celine employee as their design director. The following year, they officially retired from acting for good. 2012 was also the year that they were nominated for their first CFDA award, which is kind of like the Oscars of the fashion world. Over the years, The Row ended up winning five CFDAs, including Women's Wear Designer of the Year in 2012 and 2015.
1: I think it kind of makes sense now that I'm reading this again, why, when we consider The Row, we thought about this time period, because Mm. this is the time period that they became mainstream, like a brand amongst the others. Now, even though Mary-Kate and Ashley had taken a step back from the limelight, their private lives remained tabloid fodder, no matter how much they tried to keep a lid on it. And I think this was especially the case for Mary-Kate, particularly around her relationship with Olivier Sarkozy.
0: Yeah, let's quickly explain who Olivier Sarkozy is, or rather who he was when he met Mary-Kate. Now, also a note. His name is Olivier, but for the rest of the episode, we will refer to him as Oliver because that's how he tends to refer to himself as well. Yeah, apparently
1: he personally always opted for the Western spelling of Oliver. Olivier. Yeah. Yeah. So good on him. <laughs> but... <laughs> As someone with a partner called Oliver, I would
0: happily take Olivier over Oliver. Yeah, look, I love Ollie, I love him. But Olivier is the hotter the version hotter of Oliver. <laughs> so I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. Now,
1: by 2012, when Mary-Kate met Sarkozy, he was a successful French businessman who worked in finance and he was a pretty big deal. In 2007, Forbes magazine wrote that he had a hand in some of the world's biggest bank takeovers. Yeah,
0: he had been previously married to a freelance fashion writer in the 90s with whom he had two children. Sarkozy and his first wife had actually been married for 14 years before they separated in 2010. Perhaps most notably though, he is the half-brother of Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France between 2007 and 2012. So he's extremely well connected. Yeah, and was
1: very much in the public eye at the time that he was dating Mary Kate Mm -hmm. because of his brother now Mary Kate and Oliver apparently met by coincidence when they attended the same party at the start of 2012 now there was a 17 year age gap between them when they met Mary Kate was 25 and Oliver was 42 that detail in particular quickly became a sticking point for the tabloids I mean the tabloids are always looking for a story and a narrative and this was theirs
0: yeah when People Magazine first reported that Mary Kate and Oliver were dating in May 2012 they actually said a sort told them that it was his age, him being 17 years older than her was like a green flag or like a draw card for her entering the relationship. The source told People Mag this. Mary Kate is constantly complaining about boys not being mature enough for her. She got the kids out of her system. Now being a businesswoman dominates her time and she is rarely impressed with guys. What a flax I mean, I know that's an anonymous source quote, but (laughs)
1: it's pretty (laughs) funny anyway. Now, the two of them were known for attending New York Knicks games at Madison Square Garden and were occasionally even seen there with Oliver's two children from his former marriage. There was also one visit that I think we obviously need to mention because it made headlines. It was November 2012 and the two of them were photographed in the audience at this basketball game. Now, in the photo, Oliver was sort of cradling Mary-Kate's face and kissing her on the forehead and Mary-Kate was captured just staring uncomfortably (laughs) at him, the kind of way that like maybe – A kid looks at their father when they're being kissed on the head and they don't want to be kissed on the head or having someone around them be too affectionate in public. And naturally this photo was eaten up by the press. It is a really interesting photo to look at and to consider. That said, I'll always have the belief that you could probably capture anything you wanted to in photos if you were trying to. Like photos, some people say photos paint paint. A thousand words or whatever that saying is. Oh,
0: I love you for getting every saying wrong on this show. What is it? A picture paints a thousand words. Yes, but I would probably argue the opposite, that
1: often pictures are like show <laughs> stories that aren't there. That said, I will
0: say it is a really interesting, unique photo. I had forgotten about this photo. So when we were going through the research with Justine, I saw these points and I was like, hmm, the photo at the basketball in 2012. And it kind of rung some bells in my mind. I went back, Googled it. We will put this on our Instagram page, by the way, for you all to see. So go over to Shameless Podcast on Instagram. This photo, I'm so not surprised it went viral. I'm not so all. not surprised people picked it up. It really does look like a kid and her father and I think it does It does really show that 17-year age gap, maybe even more. It looks like there's 27 years between the two people in this photo and it's just an unfortunate snap.
1: It is an unfortunate snap. Now, Mary-Kate later told the Wall Street Journal that she wasn't fazed by the critics of her relationship. She told the paper, everyone has an opinion. I find it's better to focus on what's in front of you and to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The two reportedly lived together in a $6.25 million townhouse in New York City.
0: Yeah, their relationship progressed relatively quickly as well. In Feb 2014, Us Magazine reported that Oliver had proposed. A source told the mag, and I quote, Oliver is the best thing to happen to her. The pair tied the knot a year and a half later in November 2015. They had a small private ceremony in Manhattan. Now, All of the details that the tabloids could kind of get their hands on were few and far between. Approximately 50 guests apparently drank cocktails at an outdoor garden ceremony at a private residence before heading inside for dinner. Guests were apparently told to turn off their phones and avoid taking any pictures.
1: Now, what you might remember is the media were fixated on one wedding detail specifically. Apparently, the rooms were lined with bowls and bowls filled with cigarettes and everyone smoked
0: the whole night. I remember that when we thought kind of, back to this wedding, the only thing I remember the media fixating on was bowls of cigarettes lining the entire event.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That detail was
0: everywhere. Now, to be honest, from there, they descended into
1: a pretty private married life. A few years later, Mary Kate briefly touched upon their relationship in an interview with Netta Porter's The Edit. She said, I have a husband, two stepkids and a life. I have to go home and cook dinner. I ride horses on the weekends. You find the thing that helps you relax and if you don't have it, you have to go and look for it. Or you get burned out and then you're not productive. They really did sort of take a step back from, you know, the public eye and the spotlight as much as they possibly could. Mm. There was a level to which I think we'd always be interested in them. But they didn't give the media much at all. Even these quotes, dare I say, are really fucking boring.
0: Yeah. And also, I find it really interesting that the only quotes we can really find from her are either to Vogue or to some very glossy publications like New York Magazine or net porters the edit. Like she has a, a vested interest in speaking to Netta porter one of the major retailers, maybe the biggest online retailer of the row. Like they're very meticulous with what they give and even when they give it, they give hardly anything.
1: Yeah, they get like even the quote before when she spoke on her relationship with Oliver Sarkozy
0: and said, you just put one foot in front of the other. I'm
1: like, oh my God, this is all we can get out of them. Like the yeah. world's
0: most net boring comments. Yeah. Meanwhile, around this time in 2015, several of the Rose former interns actually took the company to court. They were demanding payment for the work they did at the fashion label. The lead plaintiff, a woman called Shahista Lalani, filed the suit in September 2015 after working at the Row for five months. She, along with some other former interns, claimed that they had been working up to 50-hour weeks doing the same work as full-time employees of the fashion lines The Row and Elizabeth James. She told Page Six, it was like 100 degrees outside. I'd just be sweating to death. I probably carried like 50 pounds worth of trench coats to row factories. You're like an employee, except you're not getting paid. They're kind of mean to you. Other interns have cried. I see a lot of kids crying, doing coffee runs, photocopying stuff.
1: Now, according to reports, Shahista claims that she was actually hospitalized for dehydration because of the job. Jewelstar Entertainment, the Olsen's company, originally said that they would fight the suit and call the accusations groundless. But in 2017, the media reported that the company agreed to settle the class action with 185 former unpaid interns outside of court and pay $140,000. Now, to be clear, when you break that down, it meant each employee received about $500, not including who covered the cost for these legal fees.
0: Yeah, 500 dollars Per person, so it's yeah, not like it's not a lot at all. One hundred and forty grand sounds kind of big, but then you also consider the Rose making a hundred million a year. Hundred and forty K is nothing to make this call, cool eh? Nothing. Now, the next time we really saw the Olsons or their fashion label making headlines was during the pandemic. Fast forward a few years to April twenty twenty, and news broke that Mary Kate was desperately trying to file for a divorce. We don't know exactly why Mary Kate wanted a divorce from Oliver Sarkozy, but page six reported that she had decided to end things when Oliver invited his ex-wife to move into their Bridgehampton home at the onset of the COVID pandemic. (laughs) This was so weird. I remember seeing this headline. Obviously a lot was going on in the world. Yeah. On top of just Olsen twin news. For sure. But I remember seeing this and being really confused by the details. I think you're bang on. It was a
1: very confusing story. A source told the outlet that, and I quote, Oliver was concerned for the safety of his family in New York during the pandemic. He insisted to Mary Kate that he wanted to bring his ex-wife, their kids and his mother from the city to their Bridgehampton home. Maybe French people culturally have a different view of marriage. And while Mary Kate loves his children, it was too much to have his ex-wife living with them during the (laughs) pandemic. Would you want the ex-wife living with you for an unforeseeable (laughs)
0: amount of time in the middle of a crisis? No, I wouldn't. I really, really wouldn't. Another source disagreed, though, with that first source and said the marriage had already run its course and that by the time Oliver had invited his ex-wife and his kids to move in, Mary Kate was done. The source said the plan to move in his family was his way of moving on and the final straw for Mary Kate. Eight. are you trying to get rid of your relationship if you're doing this oh moving in your ex even though oh, it's complicated yeah. right because if you want to be able to see your kids i'm trying to put myself back in the mental headspace of early 2020 when all this shit was going down maybe he had valid reasons and he said i want to be with my kids my wife my ex-wife sorry wants to be yes. with our kids <laughs> but maybe that's the confusing part yeah who is the wife here yeah yeah but that would be so hard for the new partner or the new wife yep. who, yes, they'd been married for like, what, years by this point. That's very hard to live under a roof. You with were two stuck there as well. Kids. Yeah, you're stuck. You're stuck. There's no going anywhere. I can see both sides in this argument. It is strange for sure. Of course, it wasn't easy for Mary-Kate to file for divorce because the world had shut down. She was having a really difficult time getting the court to process her paperwork. In order to actually get a divorce, you have to deliver a physical copy of divorce filings to a court. But because of the pandemic, many states, including New York, where they lived had closed their courts and had stopped accepting what they were referring to as non-emergency divorce filings.
1: Yeah, Mary-Kate, however, clearly believed her case qualified as an emergency and in mid-May filed an order to convince the courts to proceed with it. Mary-Kate said that her lawyers had received an email from Oliver's lawyers saying that they had terminated their lease on their New York apartment without her knowledge and had given her until May 18 to get her stuff out. Mary-Kate wrote in her application, I am petrified that my husband is trying to deprive me of the home that we've lived in and if he is successful I will not only lose my home but I risk losing my personal property as well. Now this is a crucial detail, that May 18 date is crucial because by the time the world was reading about this, it was May 14. Yes, she so that had was four days, days. At least by our timeline that we knew of.
0: Yeah, the emergency order also stated that the relationship, and I quote, had broken down irretrievably for a period of at least six months. A source told E that, and I quote, it's gotten very ugly between them. Another source told People, Mary-Kate is extremely hardworking and focused on her business. Her work schedule is beyond disciplined. She is the type of person who would never complain about a 12-hour workday. Oliver never understood her drive and passion. He would have loved to have a stay-at-home wife. It's interesting because the only... Interesting tidbit about the quote we gave from Mary-Kate earlier was, I get home and I cook dinner for the family. And when I heard you read that out, I was like, God, that's a lot for a woman who's running a $100 million a year business to then be expected to come home and cook. That lines up very neatly with that maybe expectation that she did both. She was the businesswoman and she played this stay-at-home role.
1: Yeah. Now, a Manhattan judge ruled that her case did not qualify as, and I quote, an essential matter But Mary-Kate was officially able to file for divorce on May 25 after the court reopened. I mean, this was naturally about as public as it could be because court Mm. filings are. And in times of desperation, when you just need to convince a court to give you a divorce, you will write what perhaps is really going on to convince the judge. It's just a shame for someone like Mary-Kate who has tried to be so private for so long that this therefore became tabloid fodder. Now the pandemic didn't just throw a spanner in the works for Mary Kate's private life, but it also threw a spanner into the works for another aspect of the twins' life. It threatened the future of the row.
0: Yeah, as we were saying before, the row had gone from strength to strength. If their stores were anything to go by, the brand was doing very well. Their store in Melrose, LA was centred around a swimming pool. Their stores were designed by hugely reputable architects. It was kind of like luxe upon lux. like nothing was too much or too big or too great For the Rose stores. For example, one person told The Cut they were stunned to walk into a Rose store and see Picasso ceramics displayed with the footwear. As the person who provided those ceramics pointed out, there are pieces of furniture in the store that are worth three times what the (laughs) sculptures are worth. It is insane the level of detail that went into these bricks and mortar stores Mm. and the
1: kind of experience that they wanted their customers to have. Things started to change for The Row, though. The Cut wrote an entire article in 2021 about whether The Row was facing an existential threat. Now, it wasn't just because of the pandemic. In the summer of 2019, Barney's had actually gone bust and The Row was Barney's single largest vendor creditor to the tune of $3.7 million. The Row's president at the time, David Schulte, also left the company that fall and is actually now suing the company and its parent company and the designers (laughs) personally.
0: He's suing everyone. He's suing everyone. Mary-Kate and Ashley stepped in and started sharing the CEO and creative director duties, but a whole bunch of senior staff exited the company. Fast forward to April 2020, the government applied for a government pandemic loan worth about $2.3 million, citing 51 staff members. But by July, Women's Wear Daily reported that as much as half of the workforce had either left or been let go. The article also pointed out that the row employed very few people of colour.
1: Yeah, now when confronted on these points, the company acknowledged its, and I quote, responsibility reducing the overhead of of its diverse and inclusive workplace, but declined to comment any further. Now, things just looked a bit weird and a bit suspicious. The Cut wrote that a former employee refused to speak to the magazine due to the company's strict non-disclosure agreements, but said as he hung up the phone, where there's smoke there's
0: fire. That NDA is not working super like well if you're hanging up the phone and saying where there's smoke there's fire. I'm just imagining someone really (laughs) rushing as
1: they're saying it and then hanging up the phone really quick. Now another sign that things were going bad was when the company ended up moving most of its production work to Italy away from the company's
0: long used New York factories Mish. Yeah this move was a significant departure from one of the core distinguishing features of the row. The brand had always prided itself on being American made. Ashley had even told the New York Times back in 2008. I'm focused on building a true American brand. For me, it was the control. I needed to make sure I could see the product being made. Things like this are successful when you really care, when you are paying attention to every single detail. So Zara, all of this brings us to the obvious question. Where are the twins now? Yeah, well, the twins
1: turned 36 this year. And have continued to focus on their fashion careers, as we've spoken about, continue to try and stay out of the spotlight as much as the tabloids try to keep them on their pages. Ashley is dating a 33-year-old artist by the name of Louis Eisner. Page Six also reported that Mary-Kate and Oliver Sarkozy finally reached a settlement in their divorce in Jan 2021. Now, the row is still going, right? Right. In fact, just last month they showed at Paris Fashion Week where fashion critic Kathy Horan noted, The Olsons own the design space, call it minimalism, call it everyday chic, once held by brands like Jill Sander and Calvin Klein. The Olsen sisters did not open the backstage to greet visitors, reporters included. That too seemed smart. The clothes say enough and nothing more. I think there's something interesting here because, yes, the row is, as we said, still going. They're still showing at Fashion Week. Fashion media alike are saying they're still amazing. It would be interesting to know what's going on behind the scenes when it comes to their financials and their mm-hmm. forecasting and what the business is going to look like in a few years. But regardless, I think one thing we can say confidently, no matter what happens to the row, let's say they cannot survive what's happened over the last couple of years, they will still be fixtures of this fashion scene because they've earned the respect.
0: Oh my God. And they've got God. enough cash behind them. Absolutely. People have so much respect for them. And I think as well, people have had respect for them for so long in the fashion industry. I mean, it was Vogue that wrote in 2011, in 10 years, it would not be surprising if the tiny Ashley and Mary Kate Olsen turned out to be two of the largest players in mid 21st century American fashion. They were right. Vogue was right and these two women, yes, they've had hurdles. Yes, they have had their, their struggles, clearly, but they are two women who have carved something remarkable for themselves. Yeah, and I think clearly the only way that they're going to be able to take the row
1: into the next step is if they remedy some of the things that were made public about Mm. the company. You know, the diversity of its workforce, how they were treating allegedly treating interns, all of those kinds of things. If they can remedy those things, then who knows what's possible. Today, what's even more fascinating is you will not find either sister on any form of social media. I think truly they are two of the more elusive celebrities
0: I can possibly think of Mm. that we've ever covered on this podcast. Yeah. And yet I don't think there is a person in my life who doesn't know who the Olsen twins are yeah their fame and their star power precedes them they don't need to do anything to feed it anymore yeah which kind of fits very nicely with the brand that they
1: wanted to create in the row but that is all we've got time for today as always a massive thank you to our researcher Justine Landis-Hanley and uh me if people
0: want to support the show what should they do well come check out those photos that we spoke about earlier on our instagram page at shameless podcast chuck us a follow while you're there we're also on tiktok at shameless underscore podcast we have a newsletter we have a lot of things going on if you suss out the show notes of this episode you'll find links to everything you could ever want thank you so much guys we will
1: be back in your ears on thursday for another wrap in the week that was in pop culture bye guys